there always should be a alarm or a frontier to protect humanity and human society. That art functions like that. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is the Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, as is the case every week these days, the biggest story remains the coronavirus. And nowhere does the art world meet the real world as often or as resonantly as in the studio of Ai Weiwei, a globally famous Chinese artist and dissident who typically uses his work to shine a searing spotlight on society's misdeeds. He has recently been addressing such issues as the refugee crisis, the subject of his documentary *Human Flow*, and the fire sweeping the Amazon rainforest, which will be the subject of an upcoming documentary, as well as the set. For planned staging of the opera Turandot in Rome, another documentary he's working on, a new film begun in February investigating the coronavirus. The virus is an apposite topic for I. Since its emergence in the Chinese city of Wuhan in December, COVID-19 has spread across the globe, sickening two million people and claiming more than a hundred thousand lives, and also drawing attention to how secretively but how ostensibly well. The Chinese government has handled the outbreak. I, a frequent critic of the Chinese government, whose battles with the state caused him to flee the country, has now been writing a flurry of op-eds to weigh in on this very complicated situation. Today, to talk about the pandemic and the role an artist should play in times of crisis, I'm joined on the podcast by Ai Weiwei. So, thank you very much for coming on the Art Angle podcast, Weiwei. Yes, thank you. There's a lot for us to talk about, but can you tell me where you're calling in from right now?、Um, I'm calling in from Cambridge、uh, in England. I was in Rome during this coronavirus situation around the middle of February. Everything is shut down. I was doing a opera in Rome. Once it shut down, I catch the last plane come back to England. Wow, and what has your experience of the crisis been like? Well, personally, I stopped our practice in making this Roman opera houses、uh, Torandot, and、uh, from then I come back to Cambridge, stay with my girlfriends and my son,、mm-hmm. and there's no school, and、uh, everything being shut down. And personally, I don't see much difference. You know, I'm an artist. I always work on my own. And yes, my studio in Berlin are not working, and people works at home. But at the same time, I am producing a film in China about this crisis. So through internet, I'm directing, and now we are editing a film. So you know, or the nature of our work is we can work at home. You are uniquely prepared for this crisis as an artist because you have gone multi-platform many years ago. And so, if an opera that you're working on gets derailed, you still have your documentaries that you can work on, your sculptures. And so now you've been working on this documentary about COVID nineteen since February, I believe. What what was it that first inspired you to create a movie about this pandemic? I actually, I never create anything. I just、uh, try to cope with the situation.、Hmm. When I just moved to Europe,、uh, I have to cope with this、uh, refugee situation. So, 
the only thing to learn and to understand the situation is to be involved. I'm learning so much daily. I I approach new information, and then you have to think about it. You have to see what is different uh, the normal situation, or, or also you have to study something about human history. You know, same similar type of uh, crisis has been happened along the human history. Mm-hmm. So you have some kind of perspective, but anyhow, this is a, a bit uh, beyond anybody's. It's not prepared for the situation like this. You can see mm-hmm. from a state level or from globally. Normally, you have a crisis which is always regional. You know, you see something's wrong in somewhere. Never really uh, have a global situation like this. Mm-hmm. So we we have been talk about globalization for. Decades, but this is a truly the most、uh, impressive practice about、uh, the the new order of the world. You know, we we、mm. we all feel it. We all somehow affected by it. This will、uh, affect our life for quite a period of time. So, as as everybody knows, this disease broke out in Wuhan and then spread throughout China before radiating out over the rest of the world. Where now it's in over a hundred countries. How well do you think the Chinese government has been handling its response to the coronavirus? It's very dramatic. You know, it happens in Wuhan, and、uh, at the beginning, Chinese government、uh, trying to cover it up for for a period of time. But that's a very crucial period of time、mm-hmm. because that is the information would alarm the whole world and alarm especially the the scientific.、Uh, Understanding about this kind of、uh, virus, but that has been kept、uh, silent. Also, being sent out some kind of missing information about this kind of problem will not transmit from human to human. So that is a huge tragic moment. I think、uh, also WHO worked in favor of China, and、uh, I don't know what is clear、uh, purpose, but they still don't understand the nature, and they trying to keep it secret, and、uh, to gain some time for some kind of political reason, and、uh, gradually the world will. Figured out what really is going on, and、mm. now it's getting so extreme. And China、uh, very successfully controlled the man、uh, problem because you know they're military, they're authoritarian society. They can do anything which to to prevent this kind of disease because、uh, there's basically no human rights or no、uh, freedom of speech there. So everything can be done in in a very sealed condition. But the you see the so-called free world or democratic society has such a problem to really make everybody aware the problem and how to deal with it. You've been writing a lot of op-eds recently that have been very powerful, and you can see your thinking evolve on this subject. And you've written that this is setting up a real ideological and civilizational struggle between the West and China. In that, China has proven that its huge advantages in terms of being an authoritarian country that has the ability to control the press and to control the entirety of its apparatus has helped it quickly, apparently, put an end to the really brutal rise of the disease. At the same time, in the West, they've been struggling because they haven't 
been able to come together and work as cohesively as a team because of all the problems of democracy. At the same time, in the West, there is this freedom of speech. And in China, there's already a martyr to the, the cover-up in the person of the young Dr. Uh, Li Wenlang, who was punished for warning people about the disease before it was widely known and then ultimately died himself. So what do you see as the parameters of this struggle that is emerging? The struggle is China, they only have a hammer. So whatever they say is a nail, they just use the hammer to just smash it. And uh, that's quite effective because there's simply there's no protection for, for negotiation in the humanitarian level. Now we don't know who's dead or, you know, how many are dead. You know, there's no open information mm. and, and there's no trust. They don't, they don't think trust is essential for that society. And uh, so when there's no voting and no independent judicial system, no independent media, so that basically functions as a very primitive type of a mafia world. Mm-hmm. So when you start discuss China, the Western society just don't understand it. But the problem also comes from the West because do they really want to understand it? Uh, same as they don't, they don't. You know, it's really a difference between a bird or a snake. It's, mm-hmm. it's so different. And uh, then yeah, the West enjoyed to have a business with China because of the, the size of the market and the, the, the labor and also the, the, the quality of this kind of authoritarian society, they can get job done, you know, whatever cannot be done in, in the West in relating to uh, human rights, uh, workers' uh, protection or environment or, mm-hmm. you know, all those issues are not existing in China. Mm-hmm. And it just needed to, to be a friend with China. That requires the West just don't talk to Dalai Lama or don't say anything about Hong Kong or Taiwan. You know, the West behave very well and they have their top companies working with China. And so now you cannot even describe China as China because it represents all those large companies in the West. Mm-hmm. And so that's why till today, even China made such dramatic disaster initiative from China, mm-hmm. and, but still criticism in many, many mainstream or the Western um, political side is very, very uh, soft and casual because they have so much to do with that. In China, we say if somebody owe you $5, you think, uh, okay, you can be very harsh, but if they, if they owe you 50 billion or something like that, mm-hmm. then you really pray the guy live longer and, uh, you know, to has no problem because all your money is in there. Mm-hmm. So China knows that very well. And that's why China has become very arrogant in many ways, has been very aggressive. And the West, uh, you know, Trump have to always talk about she is his best friend. Mm-hmm. You, you, you always wonder what's really happening here. But it's very clear, capital plays the game. You know, if you remember the movie, All President's Man, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, about Nixon, the famous line, 
follow the money. <laughs> we can easily save the world if you really follow the money. So this kind of ideological back and forth between the United States and China over trade and over transparent business practices, this has been going on for a long time. But now you've written recently that you think that the COVID-19 outbreak is going to be the starting point of a new ideological war. And it seems that just as in the United States, the presidential election is now going to be entirely determined by how voters feel Trump has dealt with this crisis. The stakes of dealing with coronavirus on the global scale seem to be a competition between authoritarian rule and a democratic rule and how effective it is. And this is where it becomes even more critical that China has been less than forthcoming about the real nature of the virus. And in one of your op-eds, you said that the disease may not be a natural disaster. What do you mean by that? Well, this is very complicated. When on the surface, we see a democratic world or a certain world, you know, the, the two forces seem to have some conflicts. But if we look a little bit further, you know, if we look at what Karl Marx writing about the capital. And we understand that today's world is still the capitalism is still played the, the major role and the, it affects every bit uh, of our life, both in so-called democratic world and the, the, the authoritarian world. And China is not really a communist society, but a state capitalism. So we have a deeper problem here, you know, then if we don't solve that, we don't come out some kind of intellectual understanding of the problem. You cannot just isolate that as a coronavirus problem. And with your documentary, is there any particular line of inquiry that you're exploring about the coronavirus? No, my documentary uh, always serve as observation. It's, it's not. Uh, it's not really serve as a political argument. I think it's too complicated the issue for documentary to make that kind of argument. I I think uh, we need a lot of discussion and we need a lot of understanding about uh, our time and our future. Hmm. I mean, it's it's notable that your most consequential body of work to date comes from a previous official government cover-up where you investigated the deaths of thousands of students who were killed when schools that were built by the government collapsed in the 2008 Sichuan earthquake. And this, of course, led to your famous internment being beaten by the police and eventually having to flee the country in 2015 after a sustained campaign of harassment. Do you, are you worried at all that doing a documentary on coronavirus could be dangerous considering the the political stakes that, that you've laid out? I think the danger there is always bigger than what I'm personally facing. You see, the whole world now is really facing such uncertainty. And uh, we, you know, the danger is always there. It depends from which angle and how you measure it. Hmm. Now, this seems to have united the world in a strange way, because everybody has this disease. It doesn't discriminate between countries, although it does discriminate between demographics within those countries. Do you think that the virus could potentially bring us closer together? I think it is a very interesting notion. You know, the fear always can unite all the people, the scariness. But you can see the politicians always use that. 
to play the fear and uh, to profit from that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think this is a strong potential of danger. The police states will become even stronger. The control, the surveillance, the big data will be much stronger after this crisis if it's going to be over or it's going to be continuous remain or to coexist with our society. But mm-hmm. for sure, the the civilians and the, the, the state control will be much stronger. Now, recently you told The Guardian that, quote, an artist must also be an activist aesthetically, morally, or philosophically. What do you mean by that? I think if artist uh, uh, is a part of the human conscious, and uh, that has to be very alert. It's like when the virus penetrates our body, so there always should be an alarm or a frontier to protect humanity and human society, that art functions like that. Mm. But you can see our art are completely corrupted. That's why in many ways our, you know, our, our thinking system, our intellectual state of mind has been collapsed in dealing with a, a crisis. And what do you think artists should be doing in a time of crisis like this? If you're the nerve endings of the body. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, if art has any value, it should have certain kind of vision and imagination in protect our humanity. Because, uh, you know, you're not a scientist and you're not uh, clean the subway. You know, it's not practical. Art is about how human can be called a very special species which can have a love or or dream or can really associate with one another. So that's very different uh, function. Now, one of the op-eds you recently wrote was illustrated by a sculpture of the coronavirus that was made by your son, Lao. Is he following in his father's footsteps as an artist too? No, I, I feel very fortunate he, he doesn't really follow that much. And uh, he made that uh, long before the virus happened. He used screws, made a fresh apple, but now it dried out. It looked just like the model of the virus. So when, <laughs> you know, the newspaper asked me to give an image, so I said that resembles that very well. But I think that the new generation really look at the world very differently. They have different language, different uh, ideas about games, about uh, communication. So I, I don't understand them that well. You know, I, I just have to cope with that situation. And being an artist has obviously given you a very rich, but also extraordinarily complicated life. Why is it that you are so glad that your son is not going to be an artist too? I think... Uh, uh, art is a very dangerous world. The nature of art is to take the steps, which is uncertainty and unknown. And so that will make you never satisfied. And there's always, uh, you have this sense of rebel, you know, because you're not satisfied. So I certainly, I, I don't think that's uh, <laughs> normally any nervous system should handle. Uh, mm. situation like that. It's not so fair to be artist. 
So you're working on your documentary? Yes, we are. We have a three documentaries uh, while we finish this year. It's wonderful. You know, we, we, we have the documentary of Hong Kong's uprising. We have this coronavirus. And we also have a documentary about Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. So it's three very, very special documentaries. And uh, we are working very hard on that. Now, you've been using your Instagram to kind of chart the strange nature of this moment, posting the daily obituary section from the Echo de Bergamo, the local paper of Italy's hardest hit city, and also all the beautiful photos of all the spring flowers popping up in England. But you've also had some fun with your Instagram feed. And over the weekend, you posted an amusing new sculpture that you made. <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, this is a moment people think has nothing to do. So I walk the backyard, you know, Cambridge have a lot of uh, green areas. So I see a piece of wood has been, uh, you know, a trunk of the tree has been thrown away for maybe ages. So I, I told my son to put on back of his bicycle. I said, just take it home. He doesn't know what I want to do. I said, I make sculpture. So I... I use the middle part, which is, has no crack. I, you know, I work with him. Use very limited uh, uh, tools. You cannot go out to hardware shop. So we barely made a, a roll of this kind of paper, uh, <laughs> which has been, you know, this is the most unnoticeable household uh, object. But at the same time, <laughs> it being treated as national strategic uh, weapon. <laughs> this is amazing. You know, this nothing can be a better ready-made than the, the the political situation we are facing. So we made it. Uh, it's just two days. Uh, made a lot of noise in this very quiet neighborhood because of all uh, retired professors. They don't know what we're doing. You know, but uh, we are. <laughs> It's so quiet. It's like that city. Everybody's like living in the tomb or cemetery. Mm. The whole world is like a cemetery. You really wonder behind those windows, is, is there still life? You don't see any kind of imagination covers the reality today. Wow. So we made this funny, you know, paper for love. I, I think the situation is people just don't used to it. And you can do so many things. I, I do daily writing, you know. There's so many things you can be done. And maybe later we will appreciate the time like this. But of course, the, the loss of life, they will never come back. They are victims of our stupidity or neglectance. So you you called this sculpture that you made the last roll of toilet paper, <laughs> which is very, yes. very funny. Do you, do you anticipate having that go on view at, at some Art Basel art fair or is the market, the art market ever going to return? I really think, I think everything will go back to normal. You know, society will not change. You know, everything will, will go back to normal. And very soon people will forget uh, things like this even happened. But still, it will happen again and again, you know. So it depends on how, how fast it will uh, repeat itself. Wow, I thought that was a very hopeful note to end on, but then it, it became a little bit more ominous. <laughs> uh, well, thank, 
Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle. Well, it's really nice talking to you. I mean, you know, I appreciate your effort in this kind of moment, still trying to have conversation. Well, thank you very much, sir, and I wish you the best of luck in Cambridge. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.